we turn to episode 25 of the plan, which is we are now, after 24 sermons, moving into the New Testament officially. And I am very excited about that for two reasons. Uh, We're going to start with the first thing that all four Gospels have in common. That's the challenge now as we move into the story of Jesus, is that we've been focusing on the plot of the Bible, and we now have four different plots. Uh, The Gospels tell the the story of Jesus, but they will emphasize different things and and put together events in different ways to highlight different sides of the story of Jesus. Um, And the first point that all four of them have in common is the ministry of John the Baptist, which is great because John the Baptist is an awesome hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament story. Also, today is the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, and so Lent begins on Wednesday, which is a special season of repentance but leading up to Easter, and it is very common to read the preaching of John the Baptist during Lent and especially on Ash Wednesday. So it's a great setup for the season that we're going into. But before we do all of that, we need to remind ourselves of the story of the Bible and, and what's been happening. What we've been saying is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world, he put people in it, he wanted them to rule the world on his behalf, that's the function they were designed for, and then he came down to live with them, and then we messed it up, and we kept messing up, and we kept messing it up, and so in the, the Bible is the story of God restoring that plan, and so what he did was he chose Israel to be his kind of model nation to show the world who he is, and so he gave them a place in the land of Israel. He gave them the law of Moses to guide their purpose, and he gave them his presence in the temple, and they uh, messed it up, just like the rest of us. Uh, It's almost as if we're the problem, like humanity is the problem. Um, But he kept working with them. He was very patient with them, but at a certain point, uh, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, we covered the point where God said, the only way I can show the world what I stand for is by rejecting what you're doing. That if I, if I allow this to continue anymore, people will think that I am okay with the sinful way that you are reflecting me. And so he sent them into exile. The Babylonians destroyed uh, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. The presence of God was lost. They lost the ability to enforce the law of Moses because you actually have to have political power in order to enforce the law of Moses. And they were taken away to Babylon. And then two weeks ago, we talked about how a small group of them came back once the Persians took over, and they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the city. And they were expecting God to come back in that time. Unfortunately, um, God didn't come back when they built the temple. God's presence did not return to the temple. And what we found was that in their desperation to get back to God, they embraced this different way of approaching the the faith and the, the law of Moses and the mission that God had given them that was really focused on racial purity, keeping the Gentiles at arm's length so they won't corrupt you, and emphasizing visible law keeping metrics, things that you can keep track of and that you can prove and you can enforce on other people. And that was kind of the legacy of Ezra, that if we can keep the law of Moses hard enough, then God will come back to us. In fact, the Pharisees and the rabbis would teach that if all Israel kept the law perfectly for one day, God would come back. That's all they needed to do, just one day. And so they worked on that project for 400 years. Now, Jack last week talked to us about the story of Esther, which represents the experience of the Jews who did not come back to Jerusalem and were still waiting for God because God is not present on the earth. And so Esther is the only narrative book in the Bible where God does not appear. He's not even mentioned. Now, in Ezra and Nehemiah, God is mentioned, but he never does anything. 
He's not an actor in the story because at this point there's this, this loss because the covenant is broken. So 400 years have passed. We're skipping over a ton of stuff. Um, I, I wish I could have done a sermon on the Maccabees to fill in some gaps. It's not the Bible, but it fills in some gaps. But the point is now we're picking up in the New Testament after this 400-year roughly project of the Jews trying to keep the law hard enough to bring God back. And we're going to see God begin to move and to act in ways that surprise the Jews to the point that most of them will not recognize it. So we're going to move into, we're going to use Matthew and Luke to tell this story. And as we read the opening passage, I want you to be, keep in mind the way we keep our bearings. The, we want to watch for people. Who is the story about? Place is where is their home. Presence is how, uh, how can they meet with God? And purpose, what did God tell them to do? As we use those for our metrics, it helps us to figure out where the story is going and how the New Testament builds on the Old Testament. Because that's, that's the amazing thing that we're going to see that has blown my mind, is seeing how the New Testament really does build on the Old Testament. So, let's pick up the story. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysantius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, so we're actually going to start first by looking at place. Where is their home? A lot has happened since the Persian Empire. The Persians were conquered by the Greeks, by Alexander the Great. Alexander died after reigning 10 years and his generals carved up his empire. And then, so there were Greeks ruling over the promised land, and then there was this little window where the Jews won independence from the Greeks and actually had their own kingdom, and it was horrible, (laughs) just a mess. And then the Romans conquered them. And so now the map looks like this. That's actually, that's one empire. The different colors are different stages of it, but that's the Roman Empire. And so you'll notice that we're still kind of a backwater. It used to be that Israel was the western backwater of the Persian Empire. Now it's the eastern backwater of the Roman Empire. And so in the passage, we heard about Tiberius Caesar, who rules over all of that. But you also heard a bunch of other names and a bunch of other places. That's because the promised land currently looks like this. So um, you've got Jerusalem is, for reference, is right here. And this green area is the province of Judea, which corresponds to the old kingdom of Judah and the lower part of the northern kingdom. And that's headed over by a Roman governor. And then this brown section here is a kingdom ruled over by Herod. It's a, he's called a tetrarch because they cut it up into quarters, and tetrarch means quarter king. Um, so, because he gets to rule over a quarter of it. So Herod rules up in Galilee, which is the old, the, the northern part of the old North Kingdom of Israel, and so it's been divided up into these different territories. And the interesting thing, and so, so the place that we're talking about, the homeland of the Jews, is now Galilee and Judea, Roman provinces controlled by the Roman Empire. Technically, they pretend that Herod's independent and just really likes the Romans, but he, he's not actually allowed to disagree with them one of those vassal things again. Now, the interesting thing about this passage, though, is noticing who is this story about. Because what, what, John, or what Luke just gave us is a list of people who could claim to be the main character in this story. Because Tiberius Caesar, he's the emperor who reigns over the Jews. 
So he could be, you know, he, and he's proclaimed the son of God. That's one of his titles. Or you could look at, you know, you've got a governor over Judea, that's Pilate. You've got a king of the Jews, that's Herod. And you've got two guys that are high priests over the Jews. Any one of these people could claim to be the main character in the Jewish story. But who is actually the main character? The word of God came to John. So this story is about John and the Jews. Because God chose to speak through John at this stage in his story. Now, in this stage, uh, we're looking at, we want to emphasize presence. How can they meet with God? They can't. Now, God can meet with them. God can meet with whoever he wants, whenever he wants. But in terms of the plan, there's no place where they can go and know that they're going to meet God. It used to be that God kept office hours, that he had an address, and you could go to this place in Jerusalem and meet God. That's not the case anymore. We've lost that. And so the, the last question then is, what is their purpose? What is the mission for the Jews when the covenant that used to be their mission is broken? Well, we've talked about this before, that, that the covenant actually tells them what to expect after it's broken. Deuteronomy 30, it says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So God wants to bring his people back together, but first, they need to return to God and obey him. That's the mission for his people. They're supposed to learn the lesson of the, the um, exile and come back to him. And so this is what Ezra and his successors thought they were doing with the meticulous law-keeping and the keeping the Gentiles at a distance. That's them trying to return to God and obey him. They've been doing it for 400 years, and they figure we just haven't done it hard enough yet. So we're going to keep working, and we're going to keep forcing other people to do it. We're going to keep policing everyone else because that person who's breaking the law in the privacy of their own home, that is keeping us from getting restored. So we're going to watch everybody, We're going to make sure that we're all doing it because we're all in this together. That's their approach. But as John the Baptist starts preaching the word that God has given him, it's a very different message. So we're going to start by looking at the way Matthew summarizes John's preaching. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, now, the repent, when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming, that is a huge earth-changing proclamation that we're not going to talk about today because in two weeks we're going to talk about Jesus' preaching and that is the core of his preaching. And so today we're going to focus on, we're just going to focus on the second part of it because Matthew tells us, and the, and the other Gospels agree, that John is fulfilling a particular prophecy. And so we can look to that prophecy to tell us what John is doing, because we often misunderstand what John is doing. We think that John, going around preaching repentance and baptizing people, is essentially the same thing as anyone who goes around now preaching repentance and baptizing people. That we, you know, we're just, I, we go out into the streets and we call any individual person, repent of your individual sins and follow God and be baptized and, 
And that individual salvation thing is what we assume that John is doing. But that's because we forget the way the story develops. Because you can't actually do that right now at this point in the story. Because God has committed to working through Israel. And Israel is, there is nothing out there for the nations yet. So God is committed to working through Israel. Israel has broken the covenant. And that has, because God is committed to them, that's put everything at a standstill. There's nothing really to preach to the nations. There's no call to leave out there for everybody to respond to because the project is stuck. So, one of the things I want to teach you is whenever you see an Old Testament passage in the Gospels or in the New Testament, remember that paper was expensive. Why does that matter? Because they would keep the quotes as brief as possible to make sure that you could find it in the Old Testament But then they expect you to pull out your own copy of Isaiah and read the prophecy that they're referring to. Because they're not going to quote a whole chapter of Isaiah and take up all that precious parchment when they're trying to tell the story of Jesus. So, let's take this quote from Isaiah and let's go back and read it in context and find what that prophecy is talking about. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. That voice in the wilderness, what are they proclaiming to the Jews? They're proclaiming that God, it's time for God to restore his people. They're saying, Jerusalem, your sins have been paid for. Because you have to remember, we're at a stage in the story where there are particular sins by a particular group of people that are holding up the entire plan of salvation. It's the fact that the Israelites are in exile because of their sins. And if God has committed to working through them, he has to solve that problem. And so what John is proclaiming, he's using the language that, and Jesus is going to use the same language that proclaims that God is restoring his people, that there is hope for Israel, that God is going to fulfill that promise to bring them back into the plan. He is going to address their particular circumstances and help them to fulfill their function in God's plan. So John announced that God was ready to restore Israel to his plan. That's the good news. There's two parts of this proclamation. There's the kingdom of heaven is coming, which is what this refers to, but there's also repent. Do something about it. Now again, we typically think that this is just like going out there and calling for any individuals to repent of the individual things in your life and individually get back with God. And all of your, in, that all the, all of your individual story is part of that, but at this stage in the story, there's something, uh, more, there's something bigger going on. So Luke summarizes John's ministry this way. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever wondered what it means for John's baptism to be for the forgiveness of sins? Does John have the ability to offer forgiveness of sins? Jesus hasn't preached a word yet. He certainly hasn't died on the cross. Hasn't been resurrected. How is his baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Well, again, we got to read the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament because when you look at the Old Testament and the prophets, every time they talk about the forgiveness of sins coming, 
they are talking about God forgiving the sins of Israel that sent them into exile. The forgiveness of sins is something God needs to do for Israel before they can get back into the plan because the reason they're not in the plan is because they did all these things wrong. And if God's plan is to show the world who he is through Israel, he can't just pretend the sins didn't happen. He has to forgive them. It has to be on the record that God has forgiven the sins so people know he's not okay with the sins. So you can see this in Jeremiah. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. When John says it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he's talking about preparing the way for God to forgive the sins of Israel to restore them to the plan. And this is a radical approach that we take for granted because we live in this reality all the time. Notice the approach that Ezra took to restoring Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah, they went to the population center, they built the institutions, they passed the laws, and they enforced them on everybody and tried to force everyone into what they understood repentance to be. And that's how they were going to renew Israel. John goes into the wilderness and calls people out of the city, and he calls them to individually decide to turn back to God and to be part of the renewal of Israel. The last time we saw Jerusalem, Nehemiah was going around beating people up to force them to follow the the law of Moses, because he thought that was the way to do it. But John is calling people out and saying, God wants to renew Israel, and he wants you to be a part of it, so choose to be a part of it. Get baptized, to repent of your sins, and that means repent of the way you've contributed to Israel's going the wrong direction, but also repent of the fact that Israel's going the wrong direction and choose this new direction. That is a revolutionary approach to call people to make the individual choice to be part of God's renewed people. We take that for granted because that's how we preach all the time. But this is the development of that approach, the proclamation of that opportunity for an individual to choose to be part of God's renewed people. So John called the Jews to join the renewed Israel through a baptism of repentance. And what you can see is that John is setting up two Israels. There is Israel the way it's been trying to renew itself, and there is this new approach to renewing Israel. Because he, he, in his preaching, he sets himself apart from the old version of renewal. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we're going to talk about the judgment aspect of this a little later. But notice what he's saying. He's saying, actually repent, because keeping yourself ethnically pure is not repentance. Keeping yourself away from Gentiles is not repentance. He says, you spent 400 years trying to keep your bloodlines pure, and the fact is God can make pure bloodlines out of rocks. It is worthless to God. That was not what he called you to do. He called you to truly repent. So John is is saying, here's the way you've been led 
to be God's people and to renew God's people, that is worthless to God's purposes. You need to follow a new way. What is that new way, you might ask? Quite naturally, because that's what the people he was preaching to asked. What should we do then, they asked. What, what is repentance? What does it look like if it's not keeping your bloodline pure and meticulous rule-keeping? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The more times I read this sermon, the more I love it. Because think about what would have happened if someone had asked Ezra, what should we do? He would have said, well, sit down and clear your schedule for the week because I'm going to read you the books of Moses. That's what you need to do. Here they are. Do that. And I'm going to be coming around to check to make sure that you're doing all of it. I'll send Nehemiah around with a thumper to make sure. John the Baptist gives a very different answer, and I love it. Because here's essentially what he says. You want to know what to do? What do you have? Okay? Be generous with it. And you, what do you do with your time? Do that with integrity. What's in front of you? What has God given you? What is in your sphere? Use it in a godly way. With integrity, with generosity, in a way that reflects God's character. Because if you're keeping the laws of Moses in ways that don't reflect God's character, that's useless. That doesn't build the kingdom. Repentance looks like choosing a different way to live, a way that reflects God's character. That's actual repentance. When you get baptized, that's what you're committing to, to living your life the way God would live it. So John emphasized generosity and integrity instead of racial purity and temple rituals. Because it's revolutionary the fact that he calls them to the Jordan River to get renewed instead of sending them to the high priest to get renewed. Right? And he says what it means is not all these rituals and it doesn't mean keeping yourself ethnically pure or all these check marks. It means it's much harder than that. It's simpler and harder. Live with integrity. Live with generosity. Love God and love people the way God loves you. It's a very simple and incredibly difficult message. And what he's doing then is now he's giving them two, a choice of two ways to be Israel. The old way of renewing Israel and the new way of renewing Israel. But there is an urgency to his preaching. And in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about the urgency that's in Jesus' preaching too. Because notice he starts talking about judgment. He says the axe is at the foot of the tree. So make your choice. All right? Time is short. Choose which one you're going to be on. Why? Well, the people were waiting expectantly and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people to proclaim the good, and proclaim the good news to them. So there's a sense of urgency, and the urgency is that judgment is coming. Now, this is going to be a really interesting thread for us to follow throughout the Gospels, because it is, I, I, it is not leading where you probably expect. 
It's not leading where I expected. But there's, it's undeniable that there is a sense of urgency. And here, for John, the urgency is that someone more powerful than him is coming. And that person is bringing the Holy Spirit with them and fire. And what's ultimately going to happen... It, here's the thing. Ju- this judgment is not coming because God is angry and he only wants people he likes to live. Right? It's not, that's not the approach. The fact is, there are two ways of being Israel... And one of them works and one of them doesn't. And at some point, this more powerful person is going to show up and is going to tell you which one works and which one doesn't. Because the way, what we've seen throughout Israel's history is that the ways that don't work lead to destruction. Over and over again, when Israel chooses the wrong direction, it leads to destruction. And if you go down the wrong path far enough, you're going to end up in destruction. So someone more powerful than John is going to come, and they're going to, they're going to make a judgment call on which is the true Israel and which is not. And the people that chose the wrong one are not going to like where their path leads them. That's the basics of what he's warning them about. So John warned them that God was going to send someone to judge the true Israel from the false one. At a certain point... The bill will come due. You're going to get what you. You're going to get wherever your path leads you. So make sure you take this choice seriously. Okay, that's what he's saying. Question is, how do people respond to that choice? Well, the the chapters that we're in don't really tell us, but the gospels will catch us up as we go into the ministry of Jesus, letting us know how people responded. So later in Luke seven, we find out how people responded to Jesus based on whether they got baptized or not from John. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So what we find is the, normal, the, the regular everyday Jews were responding and getting baptized. The, the religious Jews and the tax collectors and the soldiers and all the people that had the bad reputations, like Jews en masse were responding, huge numbers. John was way more influential in, in Judaism at this time than we realize because Jesus is bigger, but John was huge, right? And so people respond, but the group that tends not to respond is the Pharisees, and the experts in the law. Now, why didn't they respond? Are they opposed to generosity and integrity? No. They would have said that we should be generous and live with integrity too. They would have just added all these other things that sometimes get more, screen, like, get more attention and they may forget about it, but they're not going to say it's bad. Why did they not submit to baptism with John? Well, it's because remember what baptism means. It means rejecting one way of being Israel and choosing another way of being Israel. Repent means to turn. Turn from this way of being Israel to this way of being Israel. Guess who's leading the charge down this way of being Israel? The Pharisees and the experts in the law. They are the successors to Ezra. They believe with every fiber of their being that if they can keep the law hard enough, that's the way God wants them to restore Israel. They've invested everything for generations into this path. How hard would it be for any of us to let that go? What a huge level of humility would it take to be able to make that choice? Now, we're gonna fi- you find out as you read the Gospels that some of them did, but the majority of them could not give up this mission they had been on, that they had been leading. 
And that's why I use the word submit. Most of the Jews got baptized, but the Jewish leaders refused to submit to John's message. Because it's one thing to say, hey, that guy has some good points. And it's another thing to say, I'm going to give up the priorities I've been setting for my lifetime that my father taught me and his father taught him, and I'm going to choose this different way of being God's people. That's hard. And that's what John was calling them to do, and that's what Jesus is going to call them to do. So that's how the Jewish people responded. But there's one more response that's important in this story. Nobody but John knew how important this response would be. But someone's going to show up and going to make a decision about which side it is. And this is the first time that all four Gospels show him appearing in the story. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Understanding the role of John's baptism in the story of Israel helps us to solve the puzzle of why Jesus got baptized. Because if the baptism was about individual sin and saying, I have led a sinful, disobedient life, and I'm leaving that behind and following God... If that's all it meant, then Jesus getting baptized was a lie, right? It deceived people into, it sent the wrong signal about who Jesus is. Jesus didn't need to repent of his individual ways. And notice that when John objects to Jesus getting baptized, his issue, he doesn't ask, wait, but you haven't sinned, have you? His concern is that Jesus outranks him, so it makes no sense for John to be the one baptizing someone who outranks him. How do I have the authority to baptize you? I just told everybody that I can't even untie your sandals. That's the objection. The reason why Jesus is getting baptized is because Jesus is a Jew. Among the many other things that he is, he is a Jew. He is a member of God's people, and he is participating in the choice between this way of being Israel and this way of being Israel. And so when he gets baptized, he's saying, I, as a part of this group, I am choosing to turn from the path that Israel has been on and choose this way of being Israel. God's people. This is the approach that I'm going to take. This is what I'm going to stand for. That's why Jesus got baptized, was to identify what kind of Jew he was going to be, what kind of movement he was going to be a part of, what kind of message he was going to preach. And when Jesus made that choice, something amazing happens. Something so incredible, especially as we've been tracking with the plan, that it almost catches, you might miss it because of how quickly it happens. You may miss how is how important it is to the story of Israel. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What just happened? In terms of the plan, what just happened? Now, here's one of the wrinkles in this is, is the identity of Jesus. We know that Jesus is also God, and so in terms of the presence of God, that can get a little bit sticky, except to, just to remember that, that that fact is not clear to anyone yet, that Jesus is also the, the, you know, God in the flesh. It's true, but it's not clear to people. So what we actually just saw happen is the presence of God tangibly, visibly descend back to earth. But it didn't come back to Jerusalem, and it didn't come back to the temple. It came back in the wilderness onto a person. 
spoiler alert, the prophecies that say God's presence uh, will be in the second temple, that's fulfilled when this new temple, Jesus, carries the Holy Spirit with him into that temple. Because now the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is with his people again. The plan has just changed. I mean, it has been updated. So Jesus joined the renewed Israel, and God finally sent his presence back to his people. It's so huge, and it's huge, and it happens so quickly, you might miss the significance. But God's presence is back. It's on the move. Out in the sticks, in the reeds of the Jordan, his presence is back. It's a really exciting moment. It's also where we leave the story. <laughs> Next week, we're going to pick up with the voice and what the words of the voice mean for who Jesus is and how he's going to live out those instructions. Those are going to be hit. That's going to set his purpose. But for now, I want to reflect on what the story of John the Baptist and the message of John the Baptist can teach us, especially as we're headed towards the season of Lent. John is the classic prophet to use to describe the call to repent, and that's what the season of Lent is about. If you're not familiar with Lent or if you don't practice Lent, that's fine. I hope you practice repentance. Whether you do a special emphasis before Easter, that's, that's a choice. But as Christians, we're called to repent And Lent is a reminder for that. And so if you need a reminder, like I usually do, I encourage you to consider coming to our Ash Wednesday service and participating in that kind of commitment. We have something in the morning for you to do as an individual. uh, And there's times in your bulletin. And then we also have an evening service. But I would like this story to kind of set in your minds what that's about and what you're being called to do when God calls us to repent. First of all, repentance cannot be forced. It has to be chosen. Nehemiah could, God could have made Nehemiah immortal, and he could have spent all of eternity wandering around Jerusalem, beating up the people who broke the law, and it never would have brought Israel to repentance. It never would have restored Israel to his plan. Because remember, the point of the plan is that God wants to partner with us in this world. He wants us, he delegates authority to us to rule over the world on his behalf. That means he cares what we choose. He cares what we decide. He wants our creativity. He wants partnership with us. He loves us. And so he is so committed to that vision that he refuses to remove that gift of our our authority, our free will, in order to fix things around us. That means that we always have a choice. And that cuts both ways. Number one, that means you can't force the people around you, and I certainly can't force anyone around me, no matter what we do in ministry. You cannot force people to repent. They have to choose. But also, that means you can't be forced to repent. I spend a lot of my life wishing I would repent and waiting for God to make it happen. And if you're waiting for God to step in and make repentance irresistible, that's not how God works. That's not what God wants for you. So you need to choose to repent. That's one of the reasons why we have this special season to remind people, maybe at a time when you're not thinking about it, you need to choose to repent. You need to follow the path of God. The second thing that this story teaches us is that repentance means living our lives with godly generosity and everyday integrity. We can think that repentance means... um, we can think it means a lot of things. It can be a decision that we make in a moment and then we don't come back to it and it doesn't really change anything. That's the camp high. I was the master of that. You know, answer the, the call at the campfire on Friday night and then by the time school starts, you're right back to the way you were before. Repentance means committing to a way of living. And that way of living is simple 
and incredibly hard. And the thing I love about John's, John's message is I, w- I, love, I would love to use it. Here's, I'm going to teach you a parlor trick, okay? I can pick anyone in this room and tell you God's plan for your life. Guarantee it. See, the thing is, we often obsess with trying to figure out where God is going to put us, but God's plan for your life is what you're going to do with what's put in front of you. So here's God's plan for your life. I'm going to ask you a question. Number one, what has God given you? Be generous with it. Number two, what do you do with your time? Do it with integrity. That's God's plan for you. Any questions? Probably a million, right? Because, like I said, it's hard. It's simple, but it's hard. And every one of us, you know, he talked about tax collectors and soldiers, but he didn't talk about, you know, web developers and, you know, like, like high school teachers and all the different careers we have. We have to figure out what that looks like. But it's ultimately, what has he given you? Be generous with it. What do you do with your time? Do it with integrity. God will put you where he wants you if you're open to it. You need to worry about or be focused on what you do with where, what he gives you. That's what repentance means. And so one of the things that we often focus on, the, like Lent, on giving things up, what are you going to give up for Lent? But that's only one part of the habits that, that are part of that. There's also uh, generosity, giving to others is a commitment that is encouraged during Lent, reading scripture to know God's will better. There are a lot of different decisions you can make to, to live out and remind yourself of your repentance during Lent or during whatever season or whatever time you choose to repent. But ultimately, it's not about giving up chocolate. It's not about um, you know, a, a certain habit that you're going to build. It's about following the character of God in whatever he's given you. Again, I've said a few times, it is a simple thing and it is the hardest thing you will ever do. So hard that I can guarantee you, you cannot do it. I can't do it either. None of us can do it alone. And that is why the baptism of Jesus is so important for us today. You'll notice there's no spoiler this week because we're done with spoilers. We're in the story of Jesus. And here's why his baptism matters for you. Because when Jesus got baptized, he was getting baptized into the people of God of which you can be a member. You know that Jesus is a member of this church because he is a member of the church. And so is he a member of all churches. Of, of, he is a brother to all his people. He is part of our team. Now, what we're going to find out next week is that the words the Spirit spoke tell us that he's the captain of our team. He's not just another member. But he is on the team. And you know who he brings with us? The Holy Spirit. Right? And that means that Jesus Christ is on our side to help us to accomplish the mission that we've been given. And he brings with him the Holy Spirit that inspires us, that dwells in us, that guides us, that can build us to be the people that God has called us to be and actually be able to be generous like God and have integrity like God. And it's also, it's not Jesus and me, it's Jesus and us, which means that we all, in our own giftings and our own abilities and the the spirit that God has given us, we help each other. And we go through life together. And that's how we are able to make the progress that we make and to see the change that happens as we learn and grow to be like God. And that's an incredibly inspiring message to receive. And so what I'm going to... So repentance means joining God's new people led by Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So what I'm going to ask you today, as a, in a repentant sermon of all days, what is the next step that God is calling you to take? Because he is calling every one of us to take a step. It may be one of the steps I'm about to talk about. It may be another step. If you're a tax collector or a soldier or whatever you're, whatever's in front of you. But for all of us, we are called to repent, to choose again and again the way of Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus. Maybe you haven't become a part of that team. You haven't become a part of God's people and joined that mission. Today is the best day for you to turn away from the way of the world and to choose the way of Jesus Christ and to be, choose to be his brother or sister and to be in the team and to be part of God's renewed people. Today is the best day to make that decision. Maybe you've made that decision and you're, you have the Holy Spirit and you're part of the church and yet we still find ourselves drifting back to other ways of doing things, and maybe you need to recommit yourself to that path. Today is the best day to make that decision. And you can do that by coming forward as we sing the last song. You can talk to one of our staff members. If you're online, we encourage you to get a hold of us or to talk to a Christian that you trust. But today is the best day to make that decision. Maybe one of the things that you need to do as you commit to repenting is you need help. You need to be part of a team, a close team, more than just sitting in the service with others. And for that, you can join a small group, which will give you community. It will give you relationships to build you up. Or maybe you need to commit to giving to others. And that's what our service teams are for. And you can be part of a team that will inspire you to give to others and give you opportunities. If you want to join either of those, check it on your Connect card, and we would love to plug you into the ministries that we have to offer. And finally, you may want to choose to sign up for one of our Connect classes. This is where we teach you who we are as a congregation, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. Because another part of repentance is that accountability that we have where we say, we publicly identify with the community and say, I'm going to be a part of this, I'm going to be a part of where they're going, and I'm committed. And that's, that's a large part of what membership means. So if you'd like to consider membership with the church, we encourage you to sign up for that Connect class, and we schedule that as people sign up. Like I said, there may be a lot of other things you're being called to, other decisions you're being called to make. I encourage you as we stand and sing now to reflect honestly on what, how does God call on you to repent today? Let's sing.